you want to follow along in the Catechism this evening, I want to read the second question and answer of the Heidelberg Catechism. You'll find on page 202 in the Book of Forms and Prayers and 872 in the Trinity Psalter Hymnal. Last Lord's Day, Michael looked together with you at what is our only comfort in life and in death and highlighted that uh, our comfort cannot be found in counterfeits but only in belonging to our Savior, Jesus Christ. And then the Catechism follows up with this question. Question two, how many things must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort? Three, first, how great my sin and misery are. Second, how I am delivered from all my sins and misery. Third, how I am to thank God for such deliverance. And then if you turn in the Word of God to the letter of Paul to the Ephesians, chapter 2, you'll find that on page uh, Ephesians chapter 2, listen, this is the word of God. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of, his, of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus." For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Thus far the reading of God's word. May he add his blessing uh, to it. Our beloved Heidelberger begins with this glorious question, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And appoints us most solidly to the Lord Jesus Christ because it knows that in our Lord Jesus every spiritual blessing is found. In him we can have confidence in this life through the ups and downs, through the highs and the lows, through the difficulties and pains as well as through the thrills and joys. Because Christ is immovable. He's unchangeable. He's forever the same. He is a rock in a weary land. He's a refuge to which we can always run. And to know the joy of the comfort in Jesus Christ is a most wonderful experience afforded to the people of God. But the question that we're looking at this evening asks, 
How can we maintain that joy? How can we live our day-to-day lives constantly in light of that joy, experiencing that ongoing comfort? How can this comfort and joy be part of the DNA of our lives so that it never leaves us, come what may? Perhaps uh, I can illustrate it for you children. I'm sure that you've all had birthdays. I know you have all had birthdays, and sometimes your birthdays are really special days. People come to visit you, and they bring presents, and they celebrate your birth. They think about you. You're the center of attention. And in the evening, as you're ready to go to bed, you say, this was the best day of my life. I wish this day could go on forever. Or perhaps some adults have been at a resort in Mexico. They've enjoyed the warmth of the sun the beautiful sea, the delicious food, the, the freedom from, from difficulties and troubles, just relaxing and enjoying. And, and as you near the end of your holiday, you say, I wish this could go on forever. Well, that's kind of what the catechism is asking. How can the joy in Christ and the comfort that comes from Him, how can that go on forever? How can we keep the comfort Despite the troubles of life, the diagnoses that we hear, the prognoses that the doctors give us, despite the challenges in relationships, the pain of disappointment, how can we keep the comfort? And what the Catechism shows us as it reflects biblical teaching is that there are three ingredients to keeping the comfort. It is knowing our sin and misery. It is knowing how we are delivered from all our sins and misery. And it's knowing how we are to thank God for such deliverance. And we see these three points reflected in Paul's letter to the Ephesians in his second chapter that we have just read. First of all, Paul reminds the Ephesians of their sin. These Ephesians were once ignorant of God, living without God and without hope in this world. They were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise. They were pagans. And then the gospel came to them, and they believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. They trusted him for their salvation. And Paul is now writing a letter to them to encourage them in the faith, to strengthen them, to teach them the things that they need to know. And one of the things that Paul does here at the beginning of chapter 2, is remind them that they were sinners. I say that he reminds them, and it is specifically them, because notice what he says at the beginning of verse 2, or beginning of verse 1, and you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked. He's pointing out their sin and their misery. And their sin, of course, is original sin. That when Adam disobeyed, he opened the sluice gates of sin, and and all who are Adam's posterity, except the Lord Jesus Christ, come into this world as sinners, dead in the trespasses and sins. 
And Paul highlights that to them. He reminds them of their original sin. And then he goes on to say, but not only did you have original sin, but you had actual sins too. You followed the course of this world. You followed the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. You lived in the passions of your flesh, carrying out the desires of your flesh and the mind. He reminds them that they lived an ungodly life. They were wicked people. They had sinned. They had rejected God's righteous requirements. They had given themselves over to the world. They were in bondage to Satan. They followed their own passions. He reminds them of the greatness of their sin. How great it was, these Ephesians. But then Paul also reminds them of the misery of their sin. Sometimes we think that sin and misery are synonyms, but they're not. They're they're two separate things. That's why the Catechism also speaks about how we are to know how great is our sin and how great is our misery. Because misery is the consequence of being the sinners and of doing sinful things. And the misery that Paul highlights here at the end of verse 3 is that we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. All mankind by their sin, the Westminster Shorter Catechism says it, lost communion with God, are under His wrath and curse, and so made liable to all miseries in this life, to death itself and to the pains of hell forever. That's our lot as sinners. We are children of wrath. All that we can expect from God is condemnation. And Paul highlights that. And notice that he highlights that to Christians, to these believers. He reminds them of their past sin. You might ask, why, why would he do that? I mean, one of the most painful things, I don't know if you experience this as a parent, but one of the most painful things I have as a parent is when my children remind me of a time when I've acted inappropriately, if I've been impatient, or if I said things that I shouldn't have said. It just hurts to hear your past sins brought up. And sometimes that's what happens. People do bring up your sins, and they do it to harm you, to be unkind to you, to to make you feel uncomfortable. And so we don't really want to hear about our past sins. We just want to move on from them. And yet, the Apostle Paul, by the inspiration of the Spirit, or, or we can even say more clearly, the, the Holy Spirit reminds these Ephesians of what they once were and of what they by nature deserved. Why does he do so? Well, we know that the Holy Spirit is good and kind and gracious, and he's loving So we know he doesn't do it in order to be unkind to the Ephesian Christians, just to make them wriggle or to feel uncomfortable as an end in itself. No, he does it for their blessing. He does it, we might say, to use the words of the Catechism, he does it for their comfort, for their joy in Jesus Christ. You see, because if you, if you don't know your sin, as, as Ursinus, one of the writers of the Catechism says, if you don't know your sin, you'll never go to the Lord Jesus for salvation. You'll never desire deliverance. Just like if you don't believe that you're physically sick, you'll never go to the doctor for healing. If you don't realize the, the soul sickness 
that we all have. We will never go to the great physician, to Dr. Jesus. And so it's, it's through the unsettling of the knowledge of our sin that God, by His grace, works comfort into our lives. It seems counterintuitive. You would think that we're happiest when we forget our sins, but that's not the way it actually is. Listen to these words from the diary of Robert Murray McShane, a young minister of the gospel in Scotland in the early 1800s. He says this, clear conviction of sin is the only true origin of dependence on another's righteousness. And therefore, strange to say, clear conviction of sin is the only true origin of the Christian's peace of mind and cheerfulness. It sounds counterintuitive, doesn't it? But because conviction of sin leads us to place our trust and confidence in the Lord Jesus, true conviction, feeling the weight of sin and the helplessness to remedy ourselves, true conviction of sin is the only true origin of the Christian's peace of mind and cheerfulness. So it's not the knowledge of sin itself that brings us comfort. No, that makes us uncomfortable. But it is what leads us to our Savior. Some of you might remember in the 1980s, the uh, bad taste campaign of Buckley's. You know Buckley's, that uh, cough medicine that tastes absolutely horrible. And uh, they thought that instead of denying that, they would just uh, maximize it and use it as an as a advertising campaign. Tastes bad, they said, and it works. They had emblazoned upon buses uh, a quote from Frank Buckley, uh, one of the owners of the company. Uh, I had a nightmare last night. Someone gave me a taste of my own medicine. Very clever. But that's the point that Paul wants to make. Dear Ephesian Christians, if you're going to know the riches of God's grace, if you're going to be convinced that every spiritual blessing is found in Jesus Christ, then remember this that you once were dead in your trespasses and sins, and more than that, you lived wicked lives. Know how great your sin and misery is. But then Paul goes on. He doesn't just speak about their sin and misery, thankfully. He also speaks of how God has delivered them from their sins and misery. And so he, he begins uh, in verse 4, speaking about the remedy. So he ends verse 3 with this, this low note, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, but God. That's all the difference in the world, but God. Someone emailed me this week and asked if I would do a series on the but gods of Scripture. I think she said there were 51 of them. But they're glorious, aren't they? These but gods. You could uh, put that under your tongue like a peppermint and, and suck on it all day long to, to think of what I was by nature, children of wrath. 
by nature children of wrath under God's wrath, but God. Well, what did God do? Well, he says, God has saved us from all our sin and misery. God has given us new life, made us alive together with Christ when we were dead in our trespasses. By grace, we've been saved. He raised us up with Christ. He seated us with Christ in the, in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. God had mercy upon us. He didn't leave us in the mess that our sin had made us, uh, had left us in. But he intervened. He interjected himself. He imposed himself upon us. And he saved us by his sovereign grace. He delivered us. And he did it all through the Lord Jesus Christ. You could just see that uh, in the number of times Christ is mentioned in the verses 4 through 9. Verse 5, made us alive together with Christ. Verse 8, raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages uh, we might know uh, his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Christ is the answer. He has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. And of course, when the Apostle Paul speaks about Christ, he's speaking about Christ, the God-man, the one who came to earth, who identified with us, who took upon himself our humanity, the one who went to the cross, making peace with God, as he speaks about later, uh, through his own death on the cross. It is through Christ and Christ alone that we are delivered from our sin and misery because he has taken upon himself our sins. He has also taken upon himself our misery. That's what the the forsakenness on the cross was all about. Uh, The Lord Jesus uh, cried out, my God, my God, why are you forsaken? Because there on the cross, he took the curse. He was at that time a child of wrath. He took the curse that our sins deserve. And he has given us new life Though we were spiritually dead, we were headed for hell, and he raised us and seated us in heaven uh, with the Lord Jesus Christ. Because Christ has gone to heaven first, and, and we follow in his train so that we are now seated with him in the heavenly places. It's all because of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's all of grace. It's, it has nothing to do with our own contributions. We could not save ourselves. There was nothing we could do to deliver ourselves. The the bonds that had tied us were too strong. Uh, We couldn't unravel the problems that we were in. But God, by his grace, did it through faith. He's given us the grace to believe and to embrace the Lord Jesus, to, to take him and his work as our salvation. And, uh, Even that is not of our own doing. We would never have done it if God didn't change our hearts and give us new wills. We would always resist and reject the Lord Jesus Christ. We would never come to him that we might have life if God, by his grace, hadn't intervened. No, it's all of grace so that no one may boast. But God and by God. Notice why God did it. It's not because he, he saw something in us that, that moved him, except our sin. 
which moved him to compassion. It's not because he saw any potential in us. It's not because he saw that we were making an effort. We were trying to get out of the mess ourselves, and so he gave us a helping hand. No, it's simply because God is gracious and kind. Look at what Paul says, verse 4. God being rich in mercy. God made us alive even when we were, or because of the great love with which he loved us. A love that, that Paul has, be, has said at the beginning has begun from eternity past when God has set his love upon us. It's because of that great love, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God set his love upon us. And he saved us. You know why he saved us? Verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show. Listen to this. Paul just piles it on top of each other. He can't say enough. He says, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. It's all of God. But God, he who is rich in mercy, has saved us by his sovereign grace. And so Paul says, to these Ephesian Christians. You need to know this. You need to know your sin and misery. But you need to know the rich grace of God in Jesus Christ. And so do we. You see, if we don't know the rich grace of God in Jesus Christ, that there's a grace that is greater than our sin, well then, if we know our sin, it will lead us to despair. I mean, what are you going to do if you feel the weight of sin? But there's no rescue. There's no one to take the burden from you. It will just grind you down, fill you with depression and despair. That's if you don't know the grace of God, but you do know your own sin. Or if you don't know the grace of God in Jesus Christ, then, then you will always minimize your sin. You will think you're not that bad. And if you don't think you're all that bad, then you can fix the problem you have yourself. You'll never go to the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation because you don't know what he has done for sinners. And you'll figure out your own method. You think it's by being good or by simply stopping doing the wrong things and start doing the right things. No, if you don't know God's grace in Jesus Christ, your life will lack joy and comfort and happiness. You'll be ground down. You'll be despairing. You'll be discouraged. And you'll give up. And so Paul talks to them about their sin. And then he talks to them about the grace of God in Jesus Christ that has completely saved them. And he wants them. And, and you know, that this is really the emphasis of the Apostle Paul in his writings. He wants them to know everything they can know about the Lord Jesus. Because vague notions of what Jesus has done will not give you the stamina to resist the accusations of your own conscience, nor the accusations of the enemy, nor the catcalls of the world. It's only as we know the depths and height, the length, the breadth of what Jesus Christ has done for sinners, that we will know joy and comfort in the Christian life. So we need to know our sins. We need to know our salvation. And then we need to know how to be grateful to God for such a great deliverance. And that's what Paul 
highlights at the end of our passage in verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Remember how I said that we have both sin and misery. And the Christian salvation is not just that Christ takes care of our misery and leaves us in our sin. It's not just that he takes upon himself the curse that we deserve so that we might have the blessing. No, salvation is, is more than forgiveness. It is forgiveness, but it's, it's more than forgiveness. It's also the renovation, the transformation of our lives. I remember growing up uh, in our neighborhood, there was a bumper sticker. You don't see much, many bumper stickers nowadays, but back then you used to see them quite often. And, and it said something like this, Christians are not different, they're just forgiven. And I think that's what many Christians think, that I'm exactly like my neighbor, except I'm forgiven and he's not. But that's not the way it is at all. Christians are, as Paul will say elsewhere, new creations. As he says in Romans 6, uh, we've been delivered from sin. We're no longer slaves to sin. We become slaves of righteousness. In fact, he tells us that we should consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. So that uh, the Christian is now in the estate of grace. His sins are all forgiven, but he's a new creation. He's the new man. The old man has been crucified with Christ, and the believer is now able to live in righteousness and holiness, to live in obedience to God, and to serve God out of gratitude for his great salvation. This is what Paul says here. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in. I mean, this is, what what Paul's doing here is he's bringing us back to the garden when when God first placed us there. We were God's workmanship. Remember how he, he took the dust of the earth and he formed it into man and breathed it into the breath of life. Well, sin has ruined us. We were dead in our trespasses, and we gave allegiance to uh, the prince of the power of the air. That's what Paul had said at the beginning. And God in Christ has forgiven us all our sins. By grace, we've been saved. But he's also made us new creations. He has remade us so that uh, the image of God has been restored in us, so that we now have uh, righteousness and and holiness. So this is what what Paul says in Ephesians 4, verse 24, that, that we have put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So we are enabled by the Spirit of God who has transformed us and made us new men and women, new boys and girls. We are enabled to do the good works that God wants us to do. And we do them as a sacrifice of thanksgiving for his great deliverance in Jesus Christ. Now, why is serving God so important for our happiness and our comfort in the gospel? Isn't it enough to know that our sins are forgiven for Jesus' sake? 
Shouldn't that fill us with enough joy so that it doesn't actually matter how we live? Nothing can dampen the joy of free forgiveness in Jesus Christ. No, that's to distort and twist the gospel. Jude speaks about those uh, in his letter who have, who have turned the grace of God into a license for sin. Uh, those who think uh, remission, what a great thing it is to have our sins uh, remitted. We can sin all we want and still have forgiveness. No, that's not the way it works. Our joy in Jesus Christ, our comfort in the gospel is dependent upon our obedience. Now, how does that work? Well, it works, first of all, in this way. How do you know that Christ has redeemed you? How do you know that you've been brought from darkness into light? from bondage into liberty. Well, as Ursinus says in his commentary, you know that by the fruits of grace in your life, that those whom Christ redeems as Savior are those who submit to Him as Lord. I mean, this is the, this is the whole emphasis of the Apostle John in his first letter. Remember that He says, I write these things to you so that you may know that you have eternal life. How do I know that I have eternal life? How do I know that Christ has taken care of my sins, that God has forgiven us because of his grace? Well, do you love the brothers? Do you love the commandments of God? Do you love the truth about who Jesus is? Those are the three tests that that the Apostle John gives, the social test, the that is, do you love your brothers? Do you care for those who, who uh, God has placed as part of your body? And he gives us the ethical test. Do you walk in God's commandments? Because those who know Christ do. And if you aren't, then you ought not to think that you know Christ. And then he gives the uh, doctrinal test. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God who has come from God to be the Savior? If you believe erroneously about the Lord Jesus, then you have no confidence, or you should have no confidence, that you are redeemed, that Christ is your Savior, that you have been delivered from all your sins and misery, so that obedience, service to God, becomes a foundation of assurance of faith. That's why it is such a disastrous thing for people to think that they can live any way they want and still consider themselves a Christian. That's not the way that God designed it. Even God's dear children, when they fall into sin, become alarmed about their eternal state because that's God's design to unsettle you when you're not living the way that you want to live so that you run afresh to the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. So your joy in the Christian life depends upon your assurance of faith, and assurance depends in part on your service to the Lord Jesus. But there's another reason why service to God as an expression of gratitude will give you joy in the Christian life. And that's very simply because of this. God has made us for himself. If you want to be happy in life, then you have to be holy. One of the things that we 
used to teach our children when they disobeyed is that sin means sadness, and holiness means happiness. And that's what Paul says here, too. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works. That's what we've been made to do. And so anytime we we do anything else, it's like a a square peg in a round hole. It just doesn't fit. We're We're working contrary to God's design in our life. I mean, you take any piece of machinery, and as long as you use it the way the manufacturer intended it to be used, it runs smoothly, generally. But when you try to do things with it that you weren't meant to do with it, then it just crumbles and crashes. Well, similarly, the Christian life. We were made for good works. And what's more, God has planned those good works for us to follow in. So that as we walk according to the commandments of God, as redeemed sinners, redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, out of the horrible mess and mire of our sins, we will know joy and comfort in this life. Come what may, whatever the circumstances of our lives, This will be the bedrock of our lives, that I belong not to myself, but to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. So here are the three ingredients, knowledge of sin and misery, knowledge of the deliverance from all my sins and misery, and knowledge of how to live in gratitude to God for such deliverance. This is not just what Paul says in Ephesians. This you'll know. If you, if you have an ear for it, you'll find it all over the Scriptures. So, for instance, Deuteronomy 15, God talks to the Israelites. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Know your sin and misery. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God redeemed you. Know uh, how great your deliverance is. Therefore, I command you this day. This is how you are to, to live. Or think about Psalm 40, which we sang this morning. I waited patiently for the Lord because he, he drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog. That's the sin I was in. And he set my feet upon the rock. He delivered me by his grace. And he put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. That is, I live now not for myself, but for the God who loved me and gave himself for me. So these are the three ingredients, sin, salvation, and service. In closing, I just want to highlight three ways that we are to think of these things. We're not to think of these things superficially. Because if you think of yourself as a little sinner, you will undoubtedly think of the Lord Jesus as a little Savior. And your service to him will be little So you need to think deeply about these things. You need to feel the weight of your sins. You need to glory in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ because a big sinner leads to a big Savior. And when you consider the greatness, the vastness of your redemption in Jesus Christ and the glory of the God-man coming for your redemption, what else would you do than give yourself up wholeheartedly for his praise and glory? Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. 
So think, not superficially, but deeply. Think of these three things, not sequentially. So sometimes I think we can make the mistake in the Christian life that uh, I know my sin, so I don't need to think about it anymore. I know that Christ has died and has delivered me, so I don't need to think about that anymore. The only thing I need to think about in the Christian life is how to live the Christian life. And so we focus on service. We're done the one. We're done the second. And now we need to think about the third. That's the wrong way to think of it. If we're going to enjoy the comfort of knowing Jesus Christ, we ought not to think of these three elements sequentially, passing them by once we've completed them. Rather, and finally, we are to think of these things cyclically, that these three ingredients, the knowledge of my sin, the knowledge of my Savior, the knowledge of how I must serve Him, these are things that are always running around in our lives, in our minds, that we never really finish with one. We think about the one, and then we think about the next. We think about what a Savior we have, and then we think about how He has saved us from the terrible reality of our sin. And then we think, because I have such a great Savior, how can I do anything but serve Him? So that these three things must always be circulating in our hearts and in our minds. And as we do this, by the grace of God and as the Spirit brings these things to our remembrance, then we will know the joy of living and dying in the comfort of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. O Lord, our God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the testimony of the church through the ages. We thank you that we can learn from men of old, and we pray that you would write these truths upon our hearts by your Holy Spirit. You know that we think of some things as more pleasant to dwell on than others, but we pray that we might think of all things that we should think about, our sin, our Savior, and our service, so that we would know joy and happiness and be better servants of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray for those who are somewhat distressed at this point, that you would lead them to the Lord Jesus. We pray for those who have become careless and pray that you would convict them of their sins so that they would be led to the Lord Jesus. We pray for those who are living in sin, that you would humble them, show them the Savior, and show them uh, your plan for their lives, that they would walk in all godliness. May we be a people who are joyful in Jesus Christ and faithful in our service to you. And we pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.